I want you to meet Bernard. Bernard lives in East Oxford. He's not a regular churchgoer, but he is actually quite interested in Christianity. He likes many of its uh, ethical principles. He uh, thinks it has a, um, a grand picture of God and he particularly admire, admires Jesus. There are, though, a number of things that really niggle with him. One is, one is the fact that Christians are always seem to be fighting amongst each other. If they all believe in the same God, then why can't they just be united? But another problem, which, if he's honest, is more significant for him, is that the growing part of the Christian church are actually precisely the ones that uh, he likes the least. He um, read with interest the article recently in the newspaper summarising the recent census of British churches because it confirmed his fears. Whilst uh, the beautiful, historic, gracious parish churches of uh, England are now commonly attended by only half a dozen white-haired ladies. Other churches, predominantly black or at least non-British, are springing up all over the place, bursting out of church buildings indeed to uh, community centres and schools. Most of them he couldn't imagine in a thousand years himself going to and even those he could just about imagine going to, perhaps that lively Anglican church down the road that seems to have so many people thronging to it or that um, friendly church that meets in SS Mary and John's school that he could perhaps just about imagine going to. He detects though in those churches a um, lack of respect for tradition a sense that actually those churches don't really function within British society as a respectable part of British society. In particular, they have a scary word hanging over them, the word evangelical. There are lots of Bernards in certain sectors anyway of British society and uh, if you can imagine yourself into Bernard's mind, then you can imagine yourself into the mind of Luke's friend Theophilus. See, un unlike the other Gospels, Luke um, writes his record of Jesus' life and death and resurrection to a specific person. He addresses him at the beginning of the Gospel. It's, I myself have carefully investigated, he says, Luke 1, 3, everything from the beginning and it seems good to me also to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That actually Luke's second book in the New Testament, the Acts of the Apostles, he's also written for this same Theophilus. We're told virtually nothing about this man but we can actually infer quite a lot about him. It's very likely that he was a, a high-born man, a noble man, at least um, um, uh, from the upper echelons of society. Luke addresses him as most excellent in verse 3. 
Sometimes that was just an elaborate form of politeness and it's possible that that could have been the case uh, here. But um, more often and actually always when Luke uses the title it's addressed to senior figures in the Roman world. Theophilus is an important man. Alongside that we can, uh, uh, we can be pretty confident he was well educated. Luke assures him that uh, this writing is a careful piece of historical research. Did you notice that? Uh, um, I myself have carefully investigated, he says. I put down an orderly account. Luke wants to commend the story of Jesus to this well-educated man. Theophilus as well was interested in Christianity. Luke tells him that he is setting out to confirm certain things that Theophilus has already been told, been taught. It's not clear whether he's already a Christian and just uh, um, needs his faith, his germinal faith confirmed. It seems actually more likely that at this stage at least he is still considering Christianity. Um, the formal way in which Luke addresses Theophilus is not quite the way that uh, early Christians addressed their brothers and sisters in Christ, their fellow Christians. Almost certainly uh, Theophilus then is very interested in Christianity, has learned a lot about Christianity, but he hesitates. We can make a good uh, suggestion as well that he was a, a Roman Gentile, not a Jew, probably part of the Roman uh, ruling class. Everywhere in Luke's Gospel and in the book of Acts we find Luke making the case that the good news about Jesus is for all nations, all people. Fits uh, particularly well then if he's addressing someone who's not from God's historic chosen people, the Jews, Israel, but someone from outside of God's historic people who needs to be reassured. Yes, the good news is for you. In the book of Acts as well, we find Luke um, carefully explaining again and again that though there was lots of opposition that, aroused, uh, that was often aroused against Christians, certainly according to Roman law, they were doing nothing wrong which suggests to many people that, uh, uh, that again, Theophilus, um, as a Roman citizen, needed to be reassured that it wasn't an outright illegal, immoral thing that he was doing if he wanted to become a Christian. Theophilus is a troubled man. Luke um, uh, indicates to us that Theophilus had two particular concerns. Why? If these Christians claim to be actually in the line of the historic people of God, why do the Jews, the historic people of God, hate them so much? And why, if these Christians claim to belong to such an exalted King of kings and Lord of lords, do they find themselves again and again in society 
marginalised and with a slight, slight whiff of suspicion hanging over their gatherings. You can understand how Theophilus was worried about those questions from his, uh, 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 his particular point of view. And actually, today, in Britain in the 21st century, those worries, at least amongst certain people, are becoming very prominent again. There was a time when Theophilus's worries seemed a million miles from British society. Church going was utterly respectable. Such divisions as there were, the uh, Christians had long ago um, managed to, uh, to hold peaceably. But actually today, in the 21st century, in this country, there is a growing sense of, of sharp, hostile division amongst uh, uh, churches. And actually, whilst the respectable churches' numbers plummet, as that uh, newspaper uh, article showed, it's actually the ones that are not quite so respectable in British society that seem to be growing and becoming more and more uh, significant. Bernard's worries, then, are not so very far from Theophilus's worries. Should he get involved in these groups that just seem to squabble amongst each other? And which group should he join? Should he get involved with a group that actually society as a whole increasingly treats with suspicion? Luke's explanation then to Theophilus is vitally important for our 21st century Britain. Frankly, for the rest of yours and my lifetime, Christianity is going to be swimming in choppy waters. With plenty of people saying, like Theophilus, reasonable people saying, can this really be the truth? Are these churches, these dodgy churches, really the inheritors of God's great tradition of his dealing with mankind? We're going to survey Luke's Gospel then between now and, uh, uh, and Christmas and we are going to see that Jesus actually is a revolutionary figure who himself actually attracted suspicion and violent uh, opposition but he was ultimate, the ultimate expression the faithful expression of the eternal purposes of God. So why, says Luke, Luke will say, again and again and again, should his people not expect to find themselves in the same position in society that Jesus found himself in? This uh, letter then, this uh, gospel is vitally important for uh, uh, sceptic onlookers, but it is vitally important for God's church as well. Because we feel the force of that scepticism, don't we? When they say, well, look, you just seem to be so divided amongst each other, how can you, how can you claim 
that you are following the truth. That is the situation the early church found itself in. When they say, well, well, you seem to have lost the plot. The world's full of, uh, 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 Britain is full of respectable churches. Why are you allying yourself with those growing, slightly worrying churches that often call themselves evangelical? Luke is going to tell us The first thing Luke is going to tell us is this. Theophilus, he says, you need to know the God of history is a God of surprises. He introduces us to uh, a man called Zechariah and his wife. Zechariah is a priest, an honourable man. They are both upright and blameless but Elizabeth is childless. Zechariah, as a priest, um, ministers at the temple and just once in his life he gets a chance to go up into the Holy of Holies in the temple and to minister in the most, most special place at the heart of the nation of Israel. And there, extraordinarily, he meets an angel. The angel tells him he's going to have a son. More than that, he's going to have a son who is going to be very great a son who will be like that um, great judge of Israel, Samuel, who also was born to an infertile woman. A son who will be like that great prophet of Israel, Elijah. He will go on in the spirit and power of Elijah, this angel says. What a privilege Zechariah is going to have. God is stirring again amongst his people. God is, is, is moving as he promised he would move amongst the historic people of God. Verse 18 though, Zechariah asks a question. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well on in years. And here comes the surprise, verse 19. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come through at their proper time. Zechariah, this upright and blameless man, is actually rebuked by this angel. is actually struck dumb by this angel for his impudence. Now Zechariah, bless him, will repent of his faithlessness. He will receive his voice again. His son will grow up to be that great forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. But here, right at the beginning of Luke's story, there is a warning set down here. Outwardly upright and blameless people with a magnificent pedigree can harbour dangerous rebellion in their hearts. And the shock of that angelic rebuke is even more pronounced when we witness the angel visiting young Mary as the chapter goes on. He announces to her that she too will have a child. This time it will be even more of a miracle because she's, she is a virgin 
and this child is going to be even greater. He is going to be the one who will bring about all God's promises, fulfil all the, 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 what, what Israel hoped for. He is Jesus. Unlike uh, uh, Zechariah, though, this woman Mary doesn't have a particularly good pedigree at all. She's young, she's insignificant, she comes from a, uh, an insignificant town called Nazareth and though no doubt the Roman Catholics are right that she was a wonderful young woman and that we should rightly uh, honour her and respect her. Luke doesn't, doesn't bother to tell us that. The only thing Luke says to her, uh, about her is what the angel said to her, that she was highly favoured by God. And then she asks almost exactly the same question that Zechariah did, verse 34. How would this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? You know, upright, blameless, Zechariah was zapped by the angel for such an impotent question. Surely Mary's going to cop it now. But she doesn't. She receives only an explanation, verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Why is she not struck dumb? It can only be that underneath the same question can lie quite different attitudes of heart. And are not easily obvious, just the text of the question. But that God sees. Mary's not arrogantly questioning, she is only humbly inquiring. Verse 38 I am the Lord's servant, she says after the explanation. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Here is a first hint then in Luke's Gospel of something that we are going to see again and again and again. God is quite prepared to surprise us. He rebukes Zechariah, he chooses Mary. This is how God works. The history of God's church in this country is a tale of surprises. The most influential British Christian of the 17th century was a humble tinker, John Bunyan. In the 18th century, the man who brought living Christianity to vast hordes of uh, working class miners and factory workers was an eccentric minor academic from Oxford University, name of John Wesley. The father of modern missions who, who, who influenced the whole world for a century and more after himself was actually a self-educated shoemaker called William Carey from Northamptonshire. Why should anyone be surprised in the 21st century that God now is presenting his gospel to Britain using immigrants, using marginal groups? He went to this upright, respectable man 
in a respectable Jerusalem and said to him, watch out. He went to an unnoticed young woman in despised Nazareth and he said, you're highly favoured. And he's been doing the same ever since. It is a mistake then for any Christian or any Christian group to seek obsessively after respectability. Yes, we need to be ready to show the world why uh, there is no reason why they should fear us. No reason at all. But Luke wants to tell Theophilus You must accept this, Theophilus, he says. To become a Christian is to be following a God who surprises the world. He always will. And then, when Mary um, uh, begins her wonderful song that we... uh, Um, uh, read earlier on Mary sets out much more fully and much more clearly quite what surprises God does in this world the God of history not only a God of surprises says Mary he is a revolutionary God And she says, the revolution is here. It's a quite beautiful song. It's called the Magnificat because uh, that's the first Latin word in the Latin translation of it, um, uh, which uh, we have here as my soul glorifies. Um, Mary says that there are two aspects of God's work that we need to understand. The first um, uh, is found in verses uh, 54 and 55 at the end. We're going to sort of work backwards actually through the song. I'm sorry about that. She says, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. She knew that 2,000 years earlier, God had made promises to this man Abraham and now in the birth of Jesus she saw God keeping his promises. God keeps his promises. He never ever forgets anything he promises. He always brings it about. God had promised that one day there would be a saviour who would deliver them from all evil, who would establish a kingdom that would never end and now here he is. God is keeping his promises, she says. And he still does that. His promises don't rest with any particular nation, with any particular church tradition. He simply promised that one to Abraham that one day uh, Abraham's people, people of faith, would be as innumerable as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And today, God's church is exploding in Africa and Asia and Latin America and so that we can see God keeps his promises. 
There is no other moment in history when it was more obvious how God keeps his promises than today. We live in a little Eurocentric world obsessed by the, the, uh, the decline of, uh, of the church in this little corner of the world. But that is not at all what God is doing globally. He is multiplying his people because he promised it to Abraham. And, says Mary, actually even more prominently, God reverses fortunes. That's probably verses 51 to 53. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. The proud, he says, are scattered. Rulers are brought down. The humble are lifted up. The hungry are fed. The rich become empty. That is how God works. The greatest man in Mary's day was Caesar, the great potentate. But I tell you, 2,000 years ago, men called their beloved daughters Mary and their dogs, Caesar. Because that's how God works. He reverses fortunes. And he works in those two particular ways, keeping his promises and reversing the fortunes of, uh, of people because of two aspects of his character. The first of, first of which was found in, uh, in verse 54. He remembers. Do you see that? He has helped, actually both were found in verse 54. He's helped his servant Israel remembering, we are told. God doesn't forget. What he said to Abraham, he has still in his mind. What he says to you, he remembers. When he says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. He doesn't forget that. When he says to you, there is nothing in, in all of creation, neither height nor depth nor breadth, that can keep you from the love of Christ. He remembers it. Doesn't slip his mind. And in verse 54 as well, we find that he is merciful. That is why he reverses fortune. Because he hears the cry of the needy. He sees the tears of the penitent. He loves the hearts of the lowly. He is not uh, uh, universally merciful. No, let, let's be clear about that. The proud, the arrogant, the cruel, the hard-hearted, they excite his anger and his tough justice. But the humble and the contrite stir his heart with mercy. Do you, do you, know, do you remember what Dave was uh, reading from Isaiah 29? God promised that the lowly and the needy would be lifted up 
and those who oppress others, those who are half-hearted, would vanish away. That is how his mercy works. He has mercy on those who are humble towards him. That's what's going on, says Mary. At this moment, when Jesus is about to be born, God is keeping his promises. God is reversing fortunes. And he's doing it because he's a God who never forgets and a God who always has mercy. But Mary tells us something else as well. She tells us that there are two ways in which we need to respond. And the first is this. It is fear. Verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Of course the Bible says that perfect love dries out fear, that, that people who know and love God are not, um, not shivering wrecks wondering when uh, the sword of Damocles is going, going to fall. That, that, is a, that would be a, um, a misrepresentation of what it means to know God. But everywhere the Bible says that there is a reverence towards God and an awe towards God, a, a right fear towards God that his people must have. Uh, and frankly, it's not very prominent, is it? In our world. Far from uh, fearing God, we are self-confidently proud so often. The last thing in our minds is that we should uh, bow face down before the living God. So often when trouble comes our way or, or in our interactions with people or, in, or our inmost attitudes, there is that sort of head held high, defiant pride. Pride comes in so many forms. There's, there's the obvious pride that says, well, I can do without God. There is the self-pitying pride that complains, God has not treated me as I deserved. There's the inverted pride of Dickens' Mr. Micawber. I am the um, an humble man, the humblest man in the old world, he says. There's the tribal pride that says that I and my friends have got it sussed. We know how to do church. We know how to live a good life. We know how to be righteous. We've got everything nailed down. There's the self-advertising pride which loves to be noticed by others people. There's the secret pride that actually looks very humble and very lowly on the surface but is actually a, a hidden, haughty self-satisfaction. There is pride which will never make a fool of itself because uh, um, 
I'm just too important for that. There is pride that will not associate with uncool people. There is pride that will never relinquish that firmly established, absolutely fundamental fact that I am the centre of my universe. And nothing must get in in the way of that. He scatters those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He drives them away. He defeats them. Fear him. You know, I think this issue on its own would revolutionise many, many people's Christian lives and many, many churches. We would stop being obsessed by the ways that God has done us wrong. Oh, perhaps there are questions to ask. Mary was allowed to ask questions. But they would be as we are on our faces before the Lord. We would stop being um, um, obsessed by the, the wrongs that other people have done to us. The wrongs that happen in our relationships. Because we would fear the Lord more than anything else. You can hear Luke whispering in Theophilus' ear, can't you? Most excellent Theophilus. Most respectable Theophilus. Most high Theophilus. Do you fear the Lord? And you can hear him whispering it in our ear, can't you? Only humble people fear the Lord. Mary fears the Lord. Do you? And then there is one other response that uh, characterises this whole song uh, more than um, anything else. It is joy. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, she says. From deep in Mary's heart, there is an irrepressible joy. She is being used by God. She is seeing God working out his purposes. She is, 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 is a vessel for God's plan in this world. Oh, make no mistake about it, she will have real prices to pay. She will have to endure the shame of people considering uh, that Jesus' birth was illegitimate. She will have to endure the deep pain of seeing her son die on the cross. And she was never rich. Never um, 
was she sort of lauded and made a central figure in the church? As far as we know. But those things don't matter to her. She is being used by God. She has great joy of knowing she is serving the living God. She has a a joy which proud people cannot know. And that joy pales into significance compared with the surpassing joy which she and we uh, look forward to when after death Christ raises us up, when Christ gives us resurrection life, when Christ says, well done, good and faithful servant, when Christ actually restores his whole creation and we live forever in joy and peace which grows and grows and grows and grows forever. The central characteristic of what it means to be a Christian is that we will find joy welling up in our hearts because of what God has done for us. Do you want that? There is no easy path, no other path to that deep joy than actually learning to fear the Lord, learning not to be proud, learning in fact to be precisely those that God stoops down and lifts up. Then we will find that our hearts too resound with joy in serving Jesus Christ. Do you want that, Theophilus, says Luke? Or would you rather enjoy the uh, bit of wealth that you've got now? Would you rather enjoy... um, the um, um, intellectual pursuit of having a look at Christianity that you've got now. Do you rather enjoy that um, pride in your education that you have now? A bit of pleasure in that. But such people are scattered. Such people are brought down, if not in this life, then in the life to come. Or would you like to be lifted up like Mary and find an irrepressible, eternal joy welling up in your heart? The revolution's here, Theophilus. That revolution's been going on for 2,000 years now. God is a revolutionary God. Let's pray.